dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by the Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the founder of The Witness, very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, the book award winner. You can find him at jamartisby.substack.com. Mr. Blue Check verified himself. Dr. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother? Man, I appreciate you shouting out the jamartisby.substack.com. It's great that you're saying it so that other people can find it at jamartisby.substack.com and they can subscribe for free or paid if they want to at jamartisby.substack.com. Are you okay? Like, huh? is this, do you get oh. paid for a certain number of mentions? Like, is that what's going on? You know, just the rule of threes. I'm trying to make sure folks hear it. <laughs> you know what's interesting, Jamar, is you don't just write there, but you write at CNN, you write at so many different places. And one of the articles that you wrote recently is about something that, you know, we talk about pandemics and things that are systemic within our culture, systemic within our country. And one of those things is the unfortunate reality of mass shootings. Mm. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with is what is our response to this? And yeah. specifically, what is the black Christian perspective on what we're seeing as this proliferation of, of mass shootings? Or I should say a black Christian perspective because right, right, right. we know there's so many. But you wrote this article and I want to highlight this article because there have been so many uh, high prominent mass shootings over the past few months. Mm. And I, I don't know the numbers specifically, but it seems like it's every week yeah. or every other day or those Twitter updates and alerts, those news alerts on the phones. It's just consistent and constant. And it seems to be increasing, feels like. And And so have you had the same feeling, you know, because I think it's, I want to be careful. It's one of those things like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. It's one of those things where it's a uh, commonplace for people to feel this and say this. And I don't know if they're really feeling it or if they're just kind of riding the wave of other people feeling it. So you've really felt emotional about this because I've increasingly, I think over the past year, released that numbness and really mm. allowed the pain to come back. Yes. And, you know, not wanting to be dis desensitized to what's happening, disconnected to what's going on. So has that been your experience as well? It has. And you know, it's really bad when you sort of quote unquote lose track, right? Like, like it's hard. It's happening so frequently. It's hard to know the specifics of each one. And I felt like even just a few years ago, we knew, we knew, um, Uvalde, you know, we knew uh, these other places, uh, Parkland, Parkland and, yeah. and Newtown and all of these things. And now it's getting so frequent. I think as we record this, it's up to like the 150s mm -hmm. of mass shootings just in the calendar year of 2023. So it is it is very hard. Um, you want to feel each one because of the loss of human life. But they're also so frequent. Like, how can you, how can you live in that state as well? Right. Um, and then it also, one of the things I try to do is look, try to detach from being inside of it and look from a a more thirty thousand foot view yes, yes. at what's happening. And yes. consistently, I've heard from people from other countries, like their impressions of the United States are that we're rich 
that we do enjoy certain freedoms that a lot of folks don't in other countries. But there's this bafflement. What is this obsession with guns? Hmm. Like consistently, no matter where in the world, people are like, I just don't get Americans and guns. Like, what? Do, why, why do y'all love them so much? And I'm like, not everyone. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it has felt um, really heavy lately. And especially because a lot of this hits close to home, right. um, geographically speaking. So you wrote this article in the Courier Journal, and the title of the article is The JCTC Shooting Represents the Kind of Commonplace Gun Violence That Gets Overlooked. Mm-hmm. And so you're juxtaposing what is the the our fascination or obsession with preventing mass shootings, which is good and healthy, but then also our sometimes how we overlook what happens on the ground and maybe some of the survivors and victims that are not popular to promote and Mm -hmm. not popular and the settings that aren't popular to promote. So tell us a little bit about that article. And then I think there's so many jumping off points within this uh, narrative about who gets talked about when it comes to gun violence. So it's been a great honor to write for the local paper. Bro, you write for record. everybody. Like, let's just be honest. Like, you write for the Washington Post. You write Not for the everybody. New York Times. You Not write everybody for the CNN. You write for the... Nah, I'm just saying, you write for everybody. I, I I don't know how many you have you written for. I can't keep up. But I'm just saying, like, you write for everybody. But I know it hits different when it's local. Yeah, when it's local. So this is the Courier Journal. And I've written a few op-eds for them. And folks will likely remember April 10th, there was a mass shooting in Louisville at a bank called Old National Bank. This was a disgruntled employee, former employee, walked in, deliberately chose the time to walk into the staff meeting that they regularly hold and just started popping. And five people ended up killed. And that made national news. Sincerely, Jamar, I don't remember that. Yeah, I, it's, like this. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I don't absolutely, remember that. Absolutely, absolutely. They they all sort of cascade together. It's hard to keep track. I like totally I remember understand. Allen, Texas. I remember Nashville, and probably two others that I can think of off the top of my head. But this one completely Atlanta. This one, I I missed it. Yeah, yeah. It happened on April 10th, and probably since then we've had several more. So understandable. But this is, you know, I just moved to Louisville. I've only been here a few months when this this happened. So it was like, whoa. And it's downtown. It's only a few blocks from Simmons College where I teach. I wasn't on campus that day, but we had to shut down campus um, because we didn't know it was all we had information on was an active shooter. We didn't know if they had been, you know, detained or or killed or whatever. So we had to actually shut down campus that day. So it struck literally close um, to, to home or the workplace. And so that's why this particular one stuck out to me. But the other thing that stuck out to me was that there were two shootings that day hmm. within hours of each other and right within the same vicinity. So this is the downtown area about a mile and a half away, there was another shooting at Jefferson Community and Technical College, a community college, and there was one victim and one person was injured and went to the hospital. Uh, as far as I know, they still don't have a suspect in the wow. shooting. And um, this black man, whose name I had to hunt down because it was not easy to find, his name was Siobhan Moore, 
and he was the one who got killed. He was 24 years old. His story is absolutely tragic. The only only pictures I could find of him were his mugshots because he had just been released from prison on March 13th. So less than a month later, after he gets out of prison, he is dead. He had been serving time for a 2014 robbery and a manslaughter charge from 2016. Hmm. That manslaughter charge was he and his friend were playing with a gun. Oh, no. The gun went off and accidentally killed his friend. Wow. So his life had already been marked indelibly by guns. guns. And then he just got out of prison, and we don't know what the beef was, but- Somebody essentially drove by, shot and killed him. But as much as it's hard to keep track of mass shootings, almost nobody heard about that shooting. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. So that got me to thinking. My first impression was when these shootings happened in Louisville was this is just like Helena, Arkansas, which was baffling to me because Helena is a tiny town, maybe 9,000 people in a rural area. And yet we were plagued by gun violence. A lot of it through gangs, a lot of it because of drugs and the town is 75% black. So these are black people getting killed. We've had to have state troopers come in because the local law enforcement, it was too big for them to handle all of that. And then I get here to this much bigger city and the same things are happening. So It's not an urban issue only. It's not a a northern or a southern or regional issue only, right? This is widespread, and it's affecting all kinds of people. But it really struck me that, you know, again, this obsession with guns, this this Second Amendment, we must protect at all costs, right? What it has done, (laughs) gun violence is now the leading cause of death for young people, Mm. More than car accidents, right? More than anything else. And a big part of gun violence isn't just pointing the gun at someone else. It's suicide. Uh, 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 That's the a very preferred way of going out for a lot of people contemplating ending their life. And the easy access to guns just makes that much easier for people to to end their own life or someone else's. I forget who it was that was uh, on this podcast I was listening to. He was talking about gun violence, particularly and the defense of guns from white men and how he said it's counterproductive because we're seeing this explosion as people are hanging on to guns and people are are defending their right to to arm themselves. We're seeing this explosion of you know, death by suicide because of it. And it's, it's an efficient, easy way to end your life. And so he's like, you know, people don't understand that beyond the mental health side of things, it's, they're, they're, they're really fighting for something that's their own demise (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we're seeing the rates rise in specific States. And, and as you consider this, Jamar, I think it's good to kind of reset and take a step back. We are in the South and, Gun culture is unavoidable in the South. And I just, I don't know if people in other parts of the country miss this or don't know this, but it is routine and regular for me to be in a space and someone will mention something or say something and you'll know, oh, they're carrying, you know, like mm-hmm. they, we, I don't, I don't live in an open carry space, but it's a concealed carry space. There were a couple of times where I had to 
well, I'll, I'll just say this, that just keeping it general, there were a couple of people that in passing at my church, you oh know, my. we said something and they were like, oh, pastor, don't worry about that. I'm always caring. And I'm like, I don't want you to. <laughs> not <laughs> that you. That is not reassuring to me. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's so part of the culture right. that it's it's a natural and normal th- and people you wouldn't expect and people you wouldn't anticipate because it's just part of the the southern dna it's part of of how we present ourselves yes and are you seeing the same things in terms of that overlap and how does that overlap make you feel in your body because i think it's different for black people when we consider that it's different for black people than for others Mm -hmm. man when you say that yeah, it's ubiquitous in the South. And and, and it, it, there's different gun cultures, right. right? Especially between black and white folks and, and reasons for wanting guns. So first of all, hunting is huge in the South. It is. So, so for that reason alone, you got a lot of people with hunting rifles and different implements for that activity. Um, but it also sort of normalizes just gun ownership in general. Um, but the impact, like, 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 like when you say when, you know, people are packing, like, I remember sort of the first time I was exposed to essentially open carry wasn't even in this country. Mm. I was studying abroad um, in the Holy Land and we would go between uh, the West Bank and, and places in Israel. And I remember being in Jerusalem and they have compulsory military service starting at 18. And I remember walking past a coffee shop and it had these outside tables and there were some IDF, Israeli Defense Force soldiers there. They were young, you know, late teens, early 20s. And they were sitting there with like a cup of coffee and um, a semi-automatic rifle just strapped to them. Yeah. And I was like, it was the juxtaposition of something so normal, something so, you know, unoffensive unobtrusive like a coffee shop and then somebody there with a killing machine and the casualness of it right it was just out you know it wasn't like they were standing guard they were sitting down having coffee and i I remember how jarring that was and that's still how i feel because i i have lived in open carry spaces Hmm. and i don't know what's more disconcerting, open carry, concealed carry, right? All I know is concealed, so I'm just, I don't want to live in open. I don't want to know what's going on. It is I very, just... uh, it, it, it is, it's jarring still to me. So, it, and then we have to get into, we have to get into who gun laws are for. Okay, so let's <laughs> let's take a break and then we're going to wrap, wrap around and come back and talk about who gun laws are for right here on Pass the Mic. Hey, folks, this is Dr. Jamar Tisby. It has been so much fun recording past the mic for 10 years. Can you believe it? And we're still going strong. That's because of you. If you are not already a Patreon supporter, I'm inviting you to help us continue this podcast for as little as $1 an episode. Just go to patreon.com slash pass the mic. That's patreon.com slash pass the mic and help us continue this journey with you. So when we look at gun laws, right, there's this 
very vociferous defense by a certain constituency of Second Amendment rights, the right to bear arms, which they have interpreted and I believe misinterpreted as a free for all. Like you can't have you have you have to have the most minimal restrictions on gun ownership is how they're interpreting it. But it's a double standard. Because that is the standard for white folks. Mm -hmm. The standard for black folks has always been keep guns away. Mm -hmm. And this goes all the way back to revolutionary era times um, when they didn't want enslaved black people to have access to guns. They didn't want free black people to have access to guns. Um, I'm writing right now on the Civil War and it wasn't until the Emancipation Proclamation that black people could even fight in the Civil War. And the, there was a clause in there that said they could fight. And that clause overturned a, a, an act from 1792 hmm. that said black people couldn't join militias because they didn't want black people armed with guns. Right. So it's a very old history, but it also is a much more recent history. So, of course, the Black Panthers. Right. It was a it was a wonderful demonstration of the double standard when black people said, OK, here's the law. We can open carry here. We can use guns in our self-defense. Well, we're going to do that. And they had shotguns and pistols and revolvers and their main threat that they were arming themselves against was law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And actually, they even made a law in California uh, to restrict that, that that's when they started pulling back on gun rights mm -hmm. is when black people started to openly arm themselves and say, you coming for us, just know we're armed. So this is what's interesting. So the laws don't benefit are not designed to benefit us, but then the violence itself mm. disproportionately affects us. Mm. So you said it in the in the article, and I quote, according to the nonprofit organization Everytown, each day on average, 30 black Americans are killed by guns and more than 110 experience non-fatal injuries. At least every other day, a black person is shot and killed by police, end quote. And so what we're what every we're other is, day, this is this is by police <laughs> every other day. At least serve and protect. That, we, that we know about that we know about. based upon the documentation that we have and that was given to us, which we don't know Lord if we can trust mercy and we have no reason to trust. Right. So so you have a situation like Ralph Yarrow and you have a, a young man who knocks on the wrong door mm -hmm. and without any sort of conversation or anything, he shot. Shoot first, ask questions later. His black man. And and would yeah. have been, if not for, you know, thankfully bad aim, like, right. would have been killed. Yeah. Just because he wanted to be a good big brother. And then you have Buffalo. Oh, right, man. Where there's a I'm mass shooting. About and that's the thing is that's not even in our conversational rhetoric about mass shootings. Mm -hmm. It's Uvalde and it's yes. now Allen, Texas is going to kind of be in our Parkland and Newtown. And, and as those well they all, should be. As well they should be. I'm just saying it's not part of it to That's even it. have a racially motivated. It was racially motivated. Yes. It's not part of our, our conversational rhetoric when it comes to, to violence. It's that phrase, Black Lives Matter, has such application to gun violence in particular. Because when it comes to the victims of gun violence, whose lives really matter 
in terms of the laws we enact or don't enact, and even simply in terms of who gets attention. Talk about this a little bit more. So that's what struck me in the Louisville shootings, right? Like if you looked up Louisville shooting just right now, the the mass shooting's going to come up, right? And, and on one level, I understand that there's more victims, um, but you're going to have to dig to find any information about Mr. Moore, the other victim. And it seems as if our sympathy, our empathy hmm. is reserved for mainly white victims. Although in mass shootings, it you know, you get a lot of different Absolutely. people killed. But when black people are killed, the way it's handled, the conversation isn't about we need to change the gun laws necessarily. It's about black criminality. It's about black on black violence. Hmm. It's about why. And then there's not really the, the same level of concern in terms of the national. I would say black communities are highly concerned about it. The most concerned about it, contrary to the racist rhetoric that we're not doing anything about quote unquote black on black crime, right? Yeah, and it seems to come it seems to come up and rotate and revolve every yeah, year, eighteen months, two years. You know, someone who's uninformed and doesn't live in black communities says it. But but you know, I can't I, I and honestly, just as a pastor, I cannot count the number of times I've been invited to a stop the violence rally. Yeah. I've attended a march. I have prayed at an event. I have just sat in the back at a function that was geared around stopping violence. Yeah. I just cannot even count how many times. It is consistent every single year. There are different forums. It's always geared around. And holidays, you'll definitely get it. Mm -hmm. Black History Month, you'll definitely get it. Juneteenth, you'll definitely get something that relates to curbing community violence. And at the same time, people who are completely disconnected from the community will tell you you're not doing enough and what's yes. wrong with, why do y'all do yeah. this and what's the purpose and what's the point while at the same time being apathetic about the fact that there is and and I understand and this is just for me I understand gun ownership for those who have experienced oppression mm -hmm. and so for those who have experienced oppression I understand arming yourself in order to defend your family in order to defend your loved ones I understand that cognitively I personally don't own a gun, but I understand it for those sure. who do because you've experienced oppression. And sometimes the only way that you can defend yourself against white supremacy mm -hmm. <laughs> is to arm yourself. Right. And there's historic precedent for that. Right. There's yep. there's so many so many figures that we could point out, but it just strikes me how there's this simultaneous apathy on this side and this ignorance on this other side that is blissful. And that keeps us out of these conversations in a certain light. And I think you're hitting on there's a difference between the sympathy that comes from being a gun violent and the criminality that we will right. automatically. Well, what was he involved in? Exactly. exactly. Well, what was he doing knocking on the door? Well, well, how did he how did he he should have gotten it right. He should. It's like it's automatically like we we could have done something to prevent mm -hmm. what is so systemic in our culture. And it even goes to the and and this is not in gun violence in particular, but Jordan Neely. Yeah. Right. Oh, even man. goes to that situation where now people, well, you know, you know, he he was saying these wild things and he was doing the and it's like, do y'all understand what message this is sending? And I think they do. A death penalty, right? For 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 essentially being black. Because you can do the same thing 
as a white person and you'll get you'll get fast food on your way to prison right like with uh you know i'm talking about dylan uh, roof, dylan yeah. roof dylan right roof, yeah. um let me go back a little bit so we're talking about the, the the different ways that we perceive gun violence and since there was the there were these dual shootings in louisville i had the opportunity to get up close in, in the aftermath and see how it was handled first thing i went to old national bank in the same week that the shooting happened a day or two later they had police tape all around they had uh, a uniformed officer and what looked like uh, a plainclothes officer sort of standing guard there was plywood on the windows that had been shot out and there was a little sort of shrine a, a memorial mm -hmm. tons of flowers and this was so sh soon after the shooting that the flowers were still fresh and the stuffed animals were still fluffy and i'd never been to a site like that so soon after and it was this air of somberness around it and then later in that week um one of the victims was uh, a good friend of the governor andy Brashear, oh, okay. who who was very wow. outspoken about wow about the mass shooting. And so they held a huge sort of rally and memorial at uh, the Muhammad Ali Center in this like outdoor courtyard, hundreds of people. Uh, I went and, you know, there were a dozen or more speakers, right? And it was this big come together as a city moment. Couldn't miss it. Well, the same day that I visited the bank, I also visited uh, the community college where Siobhan Moore had been killed. And I saw what looked like police tape, but it could have just been like construction tape cordoning off an area. And that was it. Hmm. No flowers, no memorial, no remembrance. It appeared as if Business was going on as usual at the school. Classes hadn't been canceled or anything like this that. This was the day after? This is at least a day, maybe two after at most. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, isn't that interesting? The invisibility of it the all. The invisibility of it all. Because there is still a sense in which black lives don't matter. Hmm. Certainly not as much. Now, there was one black a woman who was a victim in in the old national bank shooting but but when it's that sort of almost quotidian violence yeah toward black people because of guns eh, it's a black victim who's our sympathy for who was i talking to oh i was talking to cnn journalist john blake and just name drop. <laughs> just catch it. Oh, I was talking to a CNN journalist. Well, that's relevant <laughs> because he was talking about his early days in the newsroom. And one of his bosses was basically like, if the victim isn't white, middle class wow. suburban, we're probably not going to cover it. Wow. Like that. Like they told him that it was that blatant. And he said, you know, it shifted some. But we still have these instances right here. So, again, like the philosophical, theological, sociological significance of a statement like Black Lives Matter, I think, really comes into focus when we look at victims of violence. And I think there's there's something for the church to do here. Right. I think <laughs> I, I, there, there always there always is. But I think there's something uniquely for um, 
the church to do to really speak to our gun violence issue as a spiritual crisis mm. and not just simply as a national, a mark on our, our country or something that puts people in danger, but really a spiritual crisis, right. a deep addiction and idolatry that must be confronted and addressed that uh, so often in these conversations, I hear what King called pious irrelevancies, yes. right? You know, like thoughts and prayers, th- th- but also like this, this um, also this context of, in in my circles, you know, very generalized um, generalized comments about the the wild things that the enemy is doing in the country, hmm. you know. <laughs> so so it's like hmm. the enemy is stirring up strife and uh, does you know is just wreaking havoc and and while I say absolutely yes, um, we're complicit in the havoc right. because we're allowing it to persist. Wow. And I think there has to be more of a concerted effort and more of an in- intentionality for us to be really holistic in addressing the spiritual crisis that is not, I'm not talking about the spiritual crisis in terms of, oh, it's the heart and all this. I'm talking about the spiritual crisis of idolatry to objects Mm. and idolatry to objects that make us feel powerful. And I, I, I think that is, that is imperative that there needs to be, and I'm sure people have done it, but, uh, but really a theology around this within black communities. Because it is so often connected to, um, it's it's so often connected to folk wisdom, and I think that's good. Yeah. But I think there needs to be like a concerted theological statement from Black communities and from Black churches yeah. and from Black theologians that says our idolatry to these objects, while it is not, you know, we're not saying it's intrinsically evil to own one or anything. That's not necessarily what we're saying. We're saying our idolatry to these objects m- needs to push us to ask that question is it mm. should we mm. and does and does the church come together and say we will not as a result of perpetuating this culture of violence that's incredible that disproportionately affects us uh, yeah it's <laughs> our people these <laughs> that, are our children th- these are our children and then as they were saying in tennessee we we defended your children too Mm. So you you upset you upset you upset at us. We try to save your kids. Absolutely, but it disproportionately is going to affect us. And so, in our freedom and in our protection, you are protected as well. So I like what you're saying because it sounds like it goes beyond, or at least goes deeper into the turn the other cheek, which is about the level of theologizing I hear around gun violence if if folks are opposed to it right or a statement on anger which i think is good but i think again is surface it's yeah, a low-hanging fruit very much so um i put out a, a a a tweet that got a lot of attention and the closing line of it was we don't need to arm our impulses that's good the idea being you know in a moment, we might reflexively lash out in anger. And in a normal circumstance, that could be a verbal expletive. That could be a punch to the face. That could be a Will Smith slap, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> but if you have a gun nearby, it turns violent and deadly. And that moment of impulsive feeling and reaction is so much more lethal because we have such easy access to guns. So I think you're right around anger. My question is, 
since this is it not only disproportionately affects black people, it disproportionately affects young black people, particularly young black men. Are they going to hear a theology around not idolizing instruments that make us feel powerful? Like, are they even in the spaces where they would hear that sermon or that Bible study or that message? You know, from your perspective as a pastor, how does this, if you were able to flesh out a theology, get to the people who need to hear it? Well, I mean, it can't, any theology that people need to hear can't be shared only in the sanctuary. Mm -hmm. A a theology that's shared only in the sanctuary is not really a theology. It's a pep rally. Um, (laughs) What do we do to get the theology that we share in the sanctuary to the streets and to the people who are actually needed? And that requires people who are living what they're saying. And that requires people who are mentoring those they talk about. Mm. And that requires people who are serving those who they use as sermon illustrations, right? Mm. It Mm. It requires activity. And it requires activity that gets us outside of our ivory towers, gets us outside of the quote unquote four walls of the sanctuary. And gets us in spaces to say, this is a different way of living. And I think you can only truly promote this type of theological depth and change in proximity and relationship Mm -hmm. and in vulnerability with people who are navigating realities you're not navigating. Mm -hmm. Because it would be very easy for me to say, don't idolize objects, but I don't live in the village where they live. Right. I don't live under siege. I don't live with the scenario and situation they live in. And so it's incumbent upon upon me to get to where they live. And, you know, this is why we try to, as best as we possibly can, be in proximity with our neighbors and be in proximity with neighbors who would more than likely attend our church, Mm -hmm. which is different, right? Because oftentimes our neighborhood isn't the neighborhood where we go to church, a lot more <laughs> so when often. you say neighbors, yes. even that has connotations Absolutely. and layers. Yes, the neighbors, but then also the neighbors where your church is located and planted. And so I think it requires that level of what are some core tenets and values that we as black men live by and black community live by so that when we're in conversation, when we're when we're t- serving, when we're at the gym, when we're playing on the basketball court, what are some things that we naturally say or naturally live by, or naturally consider that can be shared, digestible, that can people can hear and say, "This is not what we do," or "This is what we do." Mm-hmm. You know, this is how we think about it. You know, or it's 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 good to remember that we're all da da da. Whatever it is, I think there needs to be the arming of that. I think that's part of discipleship, right? I think that's part of discipleship when it comes to um, misogyny. I think that's part of the discipleship when it comes to homophobia. I think that's part of the discipleship when it comes to treating people, our neighbors, on the margins very well. And it has to be taught. And if it's not taught explicitly, there's going to be a gap. And I know you embody this to to a high degree. No, I'm so. trying to embody this. Let's be, let's be clear. Trying to embody this. I've not figured this out. It's very important. But, but, I, but I think that's the key. Yeah, I think that direction is right. Let me ask you this one more is what's the systemic aspect to this, right? Like there's there's a reason why gun violence is is harming the black community at, at such a volume and acute level. And it's not because we're black, right? It's not something pathological about our makeup or our culture. What are the broader forces, would you say, 
that are contributing to this crisis of gun violence, um, particularly in black communities? Well, I mean, it's it's layered, but I think also, you know, capitalism. <laughs> so, but here's here's the, here's the reason. But here's the reason why, because you got gun shops in these places, you got oh, liquor man. stores on these corners, pawn shops. Yeah, you, got, you have all this in the spaces where people are, where our people are disproportionately placed, not where they disproportionately live, where mm. they're disproportionately placed. There you go. And this is crucial to understand. It's it's governmental forces that. Put these guns. It's law enforcement that puts these guns. It puts these guns in the communities. Mm. <laughs> like I'm just saying, it's like it's it's things. It's so much more layered than we chose to do this. We chose. Right. It's so much more, and it's also the general, as you mentioned, disregard for black life. And so disposable. it is disposable. It is an acceptable dis, uh, disposability yeah. of our lives. It is acceptable for us to pathologize when it's acceptable for drugs to go here it's acceptable for for broken windows policing to happen here it's acceptable and so yes there are certain factors that play that are economic and all the above but i think just on a on a brass tacks level our lives don't matter to them a hundred percent and so when you realize that and and there's so many stories i could tell but our lives don't matter on the grounds uh, unless you know someone or, or you are someone in their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Our lives just don't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, it is the personhood and the identity and the formation of we are people who are valuable and we are people who have dignity. We are people whose lives matter. Yeah, And we have to tell each other that because yeah. others won't. I think what you're saying is so important. We need to do another episode at some point on the next level of Black Lives Matter, beyond a personal statement of individual concern, how does it actually look on a system-wide policy level? And I just think what you're saying is so powerful because what you're doing is challenging us to think about Black life beyond, oh, I'm sad this one person got killed and I saw it on video, to how do we treat whole communities around the catastrophic loss of life. Hmm. And what are we doing about it that demonstrates that Black Lives Matter as much as someone else or some other community? So that's a good word, Pastor. Good word. <laughs>